two sponsors on the CD, Baruch Hashem. The uh, one sponsor on the CD is our dear friend, Dr. Chaim Cohen. This is in honor of his birthday, that's tonight. We want to wish him a wonderful, wonderful, good year, full of success, bracha, mazel, a lot of light, and only, only good things, both in the material and in the spiritual. Also, in honor of his father's upcoming yard site, the 25th of Cheshvan, it's going to be this Shabbos, Choni ben Utzi, all of Ashalem, may his Neshama have the greatest Aliyah, may he channel lots of brachas to you, Chaim, to you and your family, for much, for only good and only wonderful things. Thank you so much. Another dedication tonight on the CD was by our dear, dear friend, Velvel Tzikman, Velvel and Polina Tzikman. And this is in honor of two of their boys who have birthdays all coming up this week. One of them on Friday, it's David's birthday, and Herschel was going to be next week on the 27th, I think it's on Monday, of uh, 27th of Cheshwin. May Hashem bench them both with wonderful, wonderful good year. Lots of atzlacha, shnasbracha atzlacha to both of them. May they bring you lots and lots of lichtige Yiddish, chassidish, nachas, and only see good things, and only nachas from all the children. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I do want to invite this week, Matzah Shabbos, we're going to have a special Malava Malka. We've been doing them, we started it again. This is for men and women. Uh, a Kumzitz Fabrengen Malava Malka. It's really beautiful. We celebrate one of the tzaddikim. And this week, Matzah Shabbos, we're going to celebrate the great saintly tzaddik. I think we're going to, I think it's going to be 8.30, maybe a little earlier. Look out for the email. We're going to be celebrating the great and saintly tzaddik, the Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, whose yard site is during the month of Cheshvan, the beginning of the month, the Gimel Cheshvan. But uh, we dedicate the month to one tzaddik. So the holy Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, come Matzah Shabbos, and you are definitely going to walk out of here with Hashem's help, inspired, connected, enlightened, full of Hasidic light, holy light. Okay, that's that. Now we're ready to begin today's class. So we're all deeply, deeply impacted by the horrible um, occurrence that happened, this very, 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 very tragic event that happened um, this past Shabbos that has shooken us all to the core and shook up the entire Jewish world and shook up the United States of America and as something like this should but the thing shouldn't happen but it did happen the murder of 11 beautiful souls innocent Jews who were killed for no other reason other than the fact that they are Jews and people of course so first of all, may the schus, may the shir be a schus for them as well. Even though the greatest schus is the sanctification of God's name. And when a Jew dies, I mean, we're not looking for that merit, but if that, if God has chosen that someone should die 
for the sanctification of God's name. And there's no greater compliment than Hashem can give that neshama as the soul is elevated to places that no one can go. So that's already an alias neshama. But the greatest achievement for souls, after all, is its influence in the world. So if we can give a shear that is going to have positive influence in the world in the merit of these neshamas, that will add to their merit if they need merit. I'm saying this will add to their merit. Um, that's number one. Number two, to us that are here, that we're reeling from this story, this is the worst terrorist attack against Jews, specifically in the United States of America, in the United States history. And people are looking for answers and want to know what Torah has to say about a tragedy like this. So first, just a small little observation that came to my head, which I'd like to make before we begin this year. Um, and that is that it's, it's, it's sadly interesting, but still yet interesting to note that the day of the slaughter was on Shabbos. Shabbos Parshas Vayera. Shabbos Parshas Vayera is the story of Avram and Yitzchak, and, but there's a special portion for each day of the week. The last and final portion was the portion of Akedas Yitzchak, which was when the first Jew stretched his neck out, to, ready to receive the knife. And we know that the binding of Yitzchak, which was the act of self-sacrifice from Yitzchak, from Isaac, was the source of all the Mesir Snefesh and all the martyrdom and sacrifice of our blood-soaked history for thousands of years is all rooted in Yitzchak's sacrifice. So if the Torah aligns itself with the events in the world when Jews were killed merely because they're Jewish, and sometimes people think that sanctification of God's name is when you're choosing to die and not and for your faith or something. That's not true. When someone is killed because they're a Jew, it's the sanctification of God's name. It's called sanctification of God's name on the person's behalf. Although, parenthetically, we can all scream out to Hashem and say, hey, what kind of sanctification of, that, of your name? It's the opposite. It's a desecration of your name. These are your children. And how is it that evil, some really bad person can, can, can bring such, such destruction and such... So we don't have to understand exactly how it works, but that's just the way it works. That when, when, a, when a person's life is taken because of Ju- Judaism and Jewishness and because of their connection to God, which is what, what it means to be a Jew, then that's called the Kiddush Hashem. Especially since it happened when these people gathered at a Jewish function and they went to Davin. People went to Shul. They went to Davin. So if you're going to a Shul, which means you're presenting yourself as a Jew in this world, you might not be doing it out on the street publicly in front of everybody in the middle of a, of a busy market. But the fact that you're not cowering and hiding your Jewishness, but you're going to a Jewish event in a Jewish place, which is God's place, ultimately, Hashem, the Jewish people, 
So there's an identification with, 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 with Jewishness and with, and with Hashem, and one is killed in that presence, that's a Kiddush Hashem. And it's rooted in Avram's and Yitzchak's sanctification of God's name. It's one continuation. And here perhaps there's something very deep and very important. The first act of self-sacrifice, which didn't materialize, because in the last moment God told Abraham to pull back the knife and not to kill his son Yitzchak. But yet when it was going to happen, it was an infinitely loving father ready to take the life of his son for God's commandment out of his love for Hashem. If that's the root of all Jewish self-sacrifice, so we have to say that in every single event when a Jew dies, whether it was a Kazakh that murdered him, whether it was a Nazi that shot the person at a mass grave, whether it was Catholic monks that were throwing a Jewish man or woman into the fires of the Ordo de Fe at the Inquisition, whether it was the Crusaders, or whether it was Jews that were massacred in Hebron during the programs or whenever, and all other times, or one was killed by a Palestinian terrorist because they're Jewish. So wherever it is, there is the external story and there is internal story. The external is a bloody murderer did something horribly evil, monstrous. The internal story is that that person didn't die in the hands of a bloody murderer. That person died in the loving hands of Hashem. Which we don't understand why, why, why Hashem needs that, what service it... We will only understand that after Mashiach comes. They realize that the Akedah is done by Hashem. Hashem took these neshamas. It's not only people ask why God allowed it to happen. In the very, very inner depth of the story, Hashem made it happen. Now that does not in any way, in any way, for what? For some tremendously tikkun that only God knows what. And for some very deep reason that this soul, as we said earlier, is given the privilege for the highest form of connection to Hashem. And again, everybody should be spared that privilege. But yet, after the fact, that is the highest privilege. And for some kind of a cosmic impact in furthering the world to Moshiach, which again, we don't understand why it needs to be in such a painful way. But that does not take away in any way the, 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 um, the blame of a wicked monster. In other words, that person is going to pay the ultimate price in addition to whatever punishment he will be punished over here in this world, he'll be punished by God and felt the full accountability even though in the inner, 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 inner root of it, it was God that did it from a completely higher, godlier purpose that we don't understand. And the, re- and the reason I'm saying this is because life is too precious, and especially Jewish life is too precious for a person to be able to be the victim of, another, of a wicked person's hatred. 
God forbid to believe that our lives are so fickle and so meaningless that a person who is consumed with hate can take and can snuff out another person's life. So if a person, these, per, these people died, it was an akedas Yitzchak done by our loving Father in Heaven, which we cry out every minute that, God, you had enough already, we don't need to have any more. And let this be the last, last, last Jew ever killed. But on the other hand, we appreciate this and we understand that out of respect for the people that died, that they did not die because of some stupidity of a monster. So that's interesting, again, as we take a little bit of a lesson and we can define what happened. What happened was a long story of the Jewish people. Millions of Jews have given the life and have sanctified God's name. And these 11 Jews are attached to that, to that chain of Jewish heroes. That's on the one hand. But now let's address something else. And that is, what now? If something like this happened in America, so what does it say to the American people as a whole? What does it say to the American... I don't mean as American people. What, what does it say to the Jewish people living in America? What's our answer? What's our answer to this? So you're going to get all kinds of things coming, right? People are going to react in different ways. And the reaction are, is going to be, there will be those who will blame the president. Why not blame the president? He's an easy target, and we can blame him all the time for every problem that happens. If we don't have who to blame, we'll blame, we'll blame, we'll blame Trump. Which... And we'll call him an anti-Semite or someone who stimulates anti-Semitism, which is obviously pretty, pretty ridiculous because if we're forgetting, it was less than a year ago that President Trump was the one who against all the advice of everybody in the world stood up for the Jewish people like no one else. The promise that all presidents promised and they didn't come through with it to declare Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people, the capital of Israel which doesn't sound much of an anti-Semite to me. To add, he happens to be the president who shut down UNRWA, an anti-Semitic crowd of clowns in the, in the United Nations, who all they do all time is fabricate condemnation after condemnation against the Jews in Israel. And he shut them down. He happens to be the president who actually saved six million Jews living it in the land of Israel from the Iranian threat of nuclear weapons, which was, was going to happen as a result of that utterly foolish and ridiculously insane um, treaty that was made with the, with the Iranians by giving, allowing them in seven years, which by now is not seven years anymore, it's only five years from now, to expand to break out with nuclear weapons, which while they're still saying that they're going to destroy Israel. And here you have a president who stood up against the entire world to save the Jewish people, all the Jews living in, in, in Israel. He happens to be the president who one of the first people that he commenced their or commuted their sentence and let them out of jail was a Jew who was innocently or has been given a unfair trial and an un, a horrific 
punishment of 27 years, a father, beautiful Jew, father of family, and he communed and let Rabashkin out. And I can go on and on and on and on and on. So this is just such an insanity. But yet, there are those who will react. Let's make a political point by this and we'll bash the president. And there are others whose reaction is, well, Jews have to take up arms. The way we can save ourselves is, every, like it was, used to be the, the, uh, the, the statement, every Jew at 22, that Jews have to have arms, we have to bear arms, America isn't safe anymore. We need to protect our shuls. Maybe we should turn our shuls into fortresses like they are in Europe, sadly. We need serious guards and protection because who knows who's the next maniac who's lurking and what would be the next target, chas for sure. And that's what people are thinking. And I, you know, you hear the talk, people saying, okay, we got, it, we got to arm ourselves. And there are those who say the only answer is that we make aliyah. That's it. Jews will never be safe in the diaspora. We cannot be safe amongst the Gentiles, even though we live in America, has been so kind and so nice to the Jewish people as a whole. But there are those who hate us, even here in the United States. And we have no other choice but to run and to go up to the land of Israel, and over there we'll be safe because we have the Tzahal and so on and so forth, our own army to protect us. And those who will say, let's pray, let's say a lot of Tehillim and just leave it, we're in God's hands. We say a lot of Tehillim for God's protection. And there are those who will say, you know what, let's just cry out for Mashiach. And because as long as the exile doesn't come to an end, you know, this, this, is, this is part of exile. This is the story of exile. So only Mashiach will help us. And so on and so forth. I don't know if I've gone through all the different solutions. And I'm not arguing on them, besides the first one. All the other things I'm not arguing on, probably all true. We should try to increase our safety every place because we can't afford another situation like this. And we have to do everything to keep ourselves safe. So we should increase our vigilance and our protection. And Jews maybe should be in every shul, those who can defend if, God forbid, something happens. And we should say extra Tehillim. And maybe it would be nice to go up to Israel, whoever can, and that's nice. But I don't think the solution is all the Jews leaving, running away, running to Israel out of fear. And calling out for Mashiach and waiting for Mashiach is definitely the right thing to do because Mashiach is so incredibly good, not because we're scared of anti-Semites. We don't want to wait for Mashiach only because of anti-Semites. We want to wait for Mashiach because of the goodness and the brightness of the days of Mashiach. But I think I have a little bit of another solution to what we, the Jewish people in America and around the world, should do. What I'd like to do in today's class is have a conversation, have a little chat with the anti-Semite. And that is that the anti-Semites, Semite or anti-Semites that there are across, whether it's Farrakhan, whether it's the neo-Nazis, whether it is the Muslim extremists, whoever they are, and they come in all colors, and they came in every single color throughout history. In a sense, I can't say I feel bad for them because I really, really, really don't like them just like they don't like me. I really don't like them, so I can't say I feel bad for them. 
But it's got to be really, really, really rough when you're trying to get rid of something again and again and again and again and again for thousands of years and you can't get rid of it. It must be very, very, very frustrating your hatred that you have to my people, to the Jewish people. It must be horrible to live being consumed with irrational hatred. And a hatred that, that is so consuming and it, 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 it creates such anger and wrath that you don't know what to do with yourself. And as much as you try to take care of the problem, you're not really able to ever, ever succeed. So to you, anti-Semite, is where I really want to direct this class. It would be really nice if we study together a Torah portion together. And maybe you can gain a little insight into what's bothering you so much, what's hurting you so deeply. And when you'll confront your, your deepest demon and get clarity, because whatever I'm going to say tonight, you know is true. Because that's, that's your hatred. And you know what I'm saying is true. It's just a matter of perhaps what I would try to share with you is a little bit of a shift in your mind that you can take that very, very truth that you know, that very reality that you know so deeply at the core of your being and transform it from being a, from creating within you agony, frustration, rage, and anger, and hatred, and turn that around into a powerful force of love and admiration to my people, to the Jewish people. And I think if we, the Jewish people, will know and appreciate the Torah that I am teaching today, it's not my Torah, it's just the Torah that is truth, and we will not be ashamed and uncomfortable to share this with the entire world. We will be proud to share this with the entire world. Then we will bring lots of healing to the world. And perhaps a nice couple of anti-Semites will have a change of heart. I don't think all, but I think that's possible that many could have a change of heart if they can redefine what's happening. So let's do a little bit of a Torah study this week. In the parsha, it says, in Shishi, in the end of the, the sixth reading of the Torah portion, it says that Avram, Abraham, um, after he marries off his son Isaac, Yitzchak, he marries off Yitzchak, Isaac, He's, now his wife Sarah, Sarah Yimenu, our mother Sarah, passed away already. And Avram is living already for 40 years. Not for 40 years. He's already three years without a wife. This is three years after the binding of, of Yitzchak, where, Avram where, where Sarah heard about it and she passed away because of the binding of Yitzchak, of Isaac. So Avram sends Eliezer, his servant, to find a wife for Yitzchak. But at the same time, Yitz, Avram is so concerned for his son Yitzchak. Yitzchak, is, Isaac is concerned with tremendous love for his father. And he's thinking, I'm getting married? 
my father shouldn't be alone. He should also get married. So what does Yitzchak do? He goes and he fetches this woman. Her name is Hagar, who is, really was already Avram's wife. She, she's the one who mothered Yishmael, Ishmael. But she had left because Avram sent her out of the house together with Yishmael. Yitzchak goes to find Hagar, bring her back so that his father, Abraham, Avram, can remarry her again. So they remarry. Now she has a new name. Her name is not Hagar. Her name is Keturah. And an interesting thing happens. They start having children. And they have many children. Together. Most people don't know this, but it's an open pasuk. In other words, Hagar, who fathered Yishmael, who mothered Yishmael, now is going to mother another few children for Avram. How many? Well, Zimron, Yakshan, Medan, Midian, Yishbak, and Shuach. These are other half-brothers that we the Jewish people have that we might have forgotten that we have. Who they are, I'm not exactly sure, but they're fathers of nations. It seems like from the, from the verses that Avram sent them off to the Far East. So which people exactly are the descendants of Abraham in the Far East? And they're not the Arabs. I don't know. But these are six sons. Now what's really, really interesting is, here's the question. We make such a big deal about Abraham having, Avram having a son when he's in his old age. He's, 90, he's, uh, uh, he's 99 years old. He's actually 100 years old when, when, I mean, uh, uh, when, when, when Yitzchak is born. And we say, wow, what a big miracle. Yitzchak is called laughter because it was so amusing and it was, so, it was such a laughter that an old couple like Avram and Sarah are going to have a child. Now fast forward, it's 140 years later. And Avram starts having children. Not one time. He has six sons. And it wasn't like his wife became pregnant with six tuplets. That's not what happened. He's continuously, so probably Egypt didn't have it in one year. So you're talking about having children from about 140 to 150. And he keeps on having children every year, every two years. And the strange thing is that no one mentions, the verse, the Torah doesn't mention anything about this great miracle that happened. That 150-year-old man is fathering children one after another. When we had made this big deal about Avram having Yitzchak earlier. So there, we might argue and try to answer this question and say, well, the big thing that we make about Isaac's birth, Yitzchak's birth, is not so much to do with Avram being an old man. It's more about Sarah being an old lady. As being an old woman, she couldn't have a child. But maybe an older person could have children. As long as he has a young wife, an older man could have children. Well, Nachmanides actually says that. Ramban, Nachmanides, one of, the, one of our great commentators on the Chumash, Nachmanides says, he proves it. From this, that we, when, when, when the Torah says that it, it's like excited that Avram is going to have a child, he says the miracle is not so much by Avram. The miracle is mainly by Sarah. She's an old lady, she couldn't have any children, and, and now she has a child. But he says an old man can have a child, and he gives an exam, and he says the proof. 
He says it in Parshas Lechlam. The proof, he proves it actually from this story. He says because 40 years later, Avram has a whole bunch of children and the Torah doesn't describe that this is a great miracle. So Nachmanides actually says that. Rashi, we can't say that in. Rashi is our main commentator on Chumash, on the Torah. Rashi cannot be of that opinion because Rashi says clearly that in Parshas Lech Lecha, where it says that, that when Yitzchak is, when Hashem tells Avram Avinu that, that, that you're going to have a child that says that Avram is laughing. Not because he doubted God, but he was laughing. And he says, uh, will an old man, like a 90, 100 year old man have children? And Rashi's bothered, well, what are you talking about? If you look in earlier in the Chumash, you see people had children when they were 500 years old, 600 years old. So Rashi says, yeah, those are the early generations when people lived very long and they had children even Noah had his sons when he was 500 years old. That was way back then. But he says, after the generation of the dispersion, a weakness came into the world and people became much weaker. And therefore most of the people, if they had their children when they were 60 and 70, but older than that, you don't find people having children. And that's why it's a big miracle. It, that's why Avram was wondering, I'm 99 years old, I'm 100 years old, how am I going to have a child? So you see clearly from Rashi that, that it's a miracle even on Avram's end. It's also, and even if we're going to say, even if we're going to say that maybe Avram himself, maybe he went out to work out in the gym every day, and therefore he was very strong and he did not become weak, even though we didn't hear that, that Avram worked out in the gym. So Avram, for whatever reason, will argue that he didn't become old. Or we will argue that maybe he was old, but Hashem turned him young again, just like he turned Sarah young again to have Yitzchak. So Hashem reversed his age. That was the first time of age reversal. Right? They, they, they have uh, a whole, a whole, uh, a whole uh, science to try to figure out age reversal. So Hashem reversed Sarah's age, and maybe Hashem also reversed Avram's age. That would be okay, but the problem is, see it says two times in the Torah that Avram became old. One time it says, before Yitzchak was born, Avram v'sara zekenim, Avram and Sarah are old, aged. But then it says that Sarah became young again, so you might say that Avram also became young again. But this week's in the Torah portion, it repeats it a second time, right before Avram dispatches Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzchak. It says again, Avram zakein, and Avram became old. So if it says the second time he became old, two times in the Torah, emphasizing his old age. And actually the Midrash, the Midrash actually tells us, the Midrash tells us, the two times that Avram became old, is that the first time he became old. Rabbi Yochanan says, one of the sages of the Talmud, that the first time he became old, but God reversed his age and made him young again. That's why it says the second time, and now he really was old. And this is before he remarries Hagar. So now without a doubt, Avram is old. Or another opinion in the Midrash is, the first time when it says he became old, he still had some moisture. The second time he became old, that there was no moisture in him dried out old man if that's the case how in the world is he going to have children so it's clearly that Avram having children at the age of 140 is a spectacular miracle and we don't find anywhere in the Chumash that we should make a big deal about this 
And Rashi doesn't even comment on it to speak about this big miracle that happened. So therefore we are forced, so we have to look in deeper and find some kind of a really good answer for this. And the answer over here is really, really spectacular and gives and will give us tremendous, tremendous insight into Jewish existence in this world and the relationship between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. And that is as follows. We find another interesting thing. When Yitzchak was born, Sarah said, this is in last week's Torah portion, Parshas Vayera, when Yitzchak was born, Sarah said, God made a laughter for me. I'm laughing. I can't believe it. This is unbelievable. God made a happy day for me. I am laughing. Whoever will hear about this, will laugh and rejoice for me. Everybody will be so happy. Which is a strange thing. Because even for an ordinary person, when they have tremendous success, I've just read a quote yesterday, I forgot already from who, it was just a cute quote, that when you're successful, the one thing of success that you'll never reach is that everybody should be happy for your success. People are usually envious for someone's success, not so happy for others, a person's success. It's human nature. Especially if that's the first Jewess, Sarah, who anti-Semitism has been a disease in the world from very the onset of the Jewish people. Why is it that everybody will be so excited that the first Jew is born to the world? Everybody's going to laugh and be so happy for Sarah. So Rashi says it was a personal joy. Because along with Sarah, the rest of the world got tremendous blessings. Many bare, Rashi says these words, many barren women had conceived. When she gave birth, she brought children into the world, not only for herself. So many other women who were waiting to have children all their life and couldn't have it, but when Yitzchak was born, suddenly, boom, there was a great, a great uh, increase of birth and many, many people who, again, wanted to have children, couldn't have children, had your babies. Many sick people were healed. And Rashi says, There was a lot of laughter in the world. And people knew where it's coming from, that it's related to Sarah, to Yitzchak being born. Which means that Sarah's joy and her blessing brought a blessing for the entire neighborhood brought joy for the entire country because it brought blessings for everyone. And to continue, it says that, um, on, on the Rashi says on the words, Heiniku banim Sarah, that Sarah nurses children. She said, oh, who would have ever believed, me, Milal, whoever promised Avram that Heiniku banim Sarah, that Sarah will nurse babies. Sarah's nursing babies? Sarah's nursing one baby, which is her baby. So Rashi says, no. On the day that Yitzchak, when they celebrated Yitzchak's birth, they made a big party, and Avram was an important person, and he had a lot of acquaintances, 
some friends, and a lot of acquaintances, and everybody came to the party. And the noble women also came along, and they brought their little babies. And since there were lots of people that argued that the miracle that happened for Avram is a charade, it's false, it's, it's just a it's, it's a, it's it's not a true thing. They were deceiving people. They never had a baby. People were saying that they found, they found the little baby that was thrown out by the mother or whatever, and they took him into the house. That's what people would anything to say that it's that God's promise didn't come true. So in order to disprove it, this old old woman, ninety years old or ninety one years old, nursed the baby publicly, Yitzchak, so that everybody can see. The other women could see. Of course, it was done modestly. It was for the women. She nursed that the people can see that Sarah has milk. And obviously, if it's not her baby at 90 years old, she wouldn't have milk. She's nursing Yitzchak. Not only that, Sarah, all the women lined up, and Sarah nursed all their babies. That's what it says. Sarah nursed all the babies. Now, by the way, it says in the Medrash that all these babies had tremendous success in their life. And not only that, they all were God-fearing people. Because they nursed from the holy milk of, of Sarah Yimeinu. But in any case, so here you see as well that the Sarah's milk, which means Sarah's blessing, extended beyond Sarah and actually moved into, was ex- flowed to all the people, to other noble women. Now it's not only Sarah. So now let's now what would make perfectly sense. If this happened to Sarah, that her miracle wasn't only her miracle, but it was a miracle that brought blessings and nourishment and goodness to all of mankind and to all of the world, it would make sense to say that the same thing happens to Avram as well. That when God made a miracle for him, that he rejuvenated his body, that he can have a child at the age when people can't have children anymore, when a man couldn't father a child, when Hashem rejuvenated Avram and made him youthful, that he can have a child, it didn't stop with Yitzchak. That miracle of, the, of Avram being, to have, being able to have children made its contribution not only to the Jewish people, but to the rest of humanity. Why? Because many years later, that very same power of the previous miracle continues. Avram takes a wife, and they have six children, six boys. And these six boys are not heads of the Jewish people, because all the Jewish people come from Isaac, from Yitzchak. They are other nations. That means the miracle extends past the birth of the Jewish people, the miracle, part of the miracle that was meant to create Israel, to create the Jewish people, flowed over and has, just like Sarah gives over her milk to, the, to, all the, to all the other noble women, Avram gives of his genes of who he is and what he is and plants that into humanity as a whole, giving birth to six other nations of that miraculous birth. And one has got to wonder why. Why is that? Why is it that, I mean, if this was a, if we're waiting, God is waiting to bring the Jewish people into the world. And we see the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the Chumash is of the Torah, is to bring 
a nation that will receive the Torah and then, and then, and then, and then spread light in the world, fine. So the Jewish people have to be born. And God wanted the Jewish people to be born through prayer and through a miraculous way, fine. Why? And, and let's say, let's go back to Sarah. Sarah. When we wonder, especially when it comes to the milk, I mean, why was it necessary? Just to prove that it's her baby, she doesn't have to nurse everybody. It's enough that she nurses Yitzchak, Isaac, in front of everybody. So they see that Isaac doesn't have to nurse. And even if you wanted to make sure, maybe she's playing around with her own baby, she's not really, the baby's not really nursing. So nurse three other babies. It doesn't say that. It says she nursed everybody. The Medrash actually says she became like a fountain of milk. She was able to, to nurse like the hundreds of babies. But why? And the answer is very, very important. Very, very important. Before Yitzchak was born, before Isaac was born, and this is so fundamental, and again, this is not fundamental for the Jewish people, this is fundamental for all of mankind to know, that we find something, another very strange thing. Before Yitzchak was born, Avram and Sarah had a name, a name change. Avram had a name change and Sarah had a name change. Avram's name initially was Avram and he became Avraham. Sarah's name was initially Sarai and the Torah says, your name will be Sarah. Avraham and Sarah, they had a name change. What's the reason why they had to have their names changed? The reason is because their astrological sign, the way they were set based on their, as they were set within the cosmos, they couldn't have any children. It was just not their fortune to have any children. So God had to rewire them. And we know that a name, in your name is your energy, your soul energy. So in order to switch their energy, God renamed them. And he, as he renamed them, as we call it in, in, in Hebrew, he switched their mazel, their luck, their fortune. Okay. But it makes sense that it's not only that they needed a name change, but that the name that they actually got is an appropriate name that fits the, the particular blessing that they need now. What's the blessing that they need now? They need a child. But if you think about it, it's really strange. What's the name that they got, Avram? Initially, his name was Avram, Aleph, Beis, Resh, Mem, and now he becomes Avraham. What's the difference between these two names? Avram means exalt a father. Av means father. Ram, Rashi says Aram, which means for an exalted people. When Avram received an extra hay, his name now stands for Av, a father, Hamon Goyim for the multitudes of nations. So here an amazing thing. Before Yitzchak is born, Avram, his name is that he's a father of one people, the Jewish people. But in order to have Yitzchak, what does God do to Avram? He makes his name be the father of all the nations. Now let's take a look at Sarah, same thing. Sarai means, a, a, Sarah means, Sar means a minister. Sarai means a minister, a noblewoman for me, for my own family. She's, she's the prince, the princess. She's the queen of her home. Sarah means that she's 
Sarah, she's ministering over everyone. She's the queen of the world. So here begs the question. Avram and Sarah are about to give birth to the Jewish nation. And they, for some reason, it's not working. They can't give birth to the Jewish nation. So God has to manipulate nature or bring about the change. So he's going to change their names to enable them to be able to have who? The Jewish people. To enable them to be able to have the Jewish people. And what name does he give them? Not a name applicable to the Jewish people, but a name that says that they're the father and the minister and the kings over all the nations. Which is a strange. What's the relationship of the father of the Jewish people to be the father of all the nations? Or to be the minister over the Jewish people and to become the minister, to become the minister of the whole world? And the answer is, that's the secret of the Jewish people. And we can never change that. It's not going to change. There's nothing that any human being can ever do to undo this. This is just the reality. That God said, that God put into the very fabric of, of creation, into the very, 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 rooted it in, he, he, <coughs> he hammered it into creation and into the, into the cosmos. That what? That the Jewish people are the blessing for the entire world. The Jewish people are at the root of all of humanity and all of creation. And they're not just a private people that enjoy an individual, special, unique connection with, their, with Hashem. And other nations have their connection, but the Jewish people have an added, an added connection as we see that God gave the Torah, Torah to the Jewish people. No, it's not about the Jewish people alone. It's about all of humanity. The Jewish people are a people that are meant to be the fathers and the mothers, the parents, and the noblemen of all of humanity. For what purpose? For the purpose of elevating all of humanity to the utmost of the connection to God. To realizing the purpose of creation, of why the creation was created in the first place. So the Jewish people have to be it to facilitate, to facilitate that bond and that connection. For who? For the Jewish people but not just for the Jewish people. Universally, for the entire world, for all of humanity. And that's why we can't be born as Jews until our parents, the father and mother of Israel, become the parents of the entire world. Become the, the noblemen, or you say the kings of the entire world. And that's the way Hashem has chosen it. To be that way. And therefore, when the Jewish baby is born, it's a mazel tov. But it's not a mazel tov for the Jewish people. It's a mazel tov for all millions and billions of people on the planet. Because tremendous blessing is coming for all of creation and all of humanity. Because the relationship and the purpose and the interest that God had in creating everything, everything, everybody, every single human being, every single plant, Every single butterfly, every single lake and stream and tree and planet and galaxy was for one purpose. That he wants to have a relationship with the world channeled and led by his connection to the Jewish people bringing his light into the world through their unique observance of the Torah. 613 commandments, which brings enlightenment and blessings to every single human being across the world. 
That's the truth. So before Yitzchak can be born, Abraham and Sarah needed to be the father and the mother of humanity. And now Yitzchak, the baby, who is the first Jew, is connected to all of humanity. In a sense, a brother to all of humanity. An older brother. An inspiration. A guide. And a minister. Literally, a ministering being for all of humanity. And his blessing brings tremendous blessings. Increases God's input into everybody's life. And therefore you as a Gentile has tremendous extra blessing because of a, of a Jewish man and woman that live in your neighborhood. The nation that hosts the Jewish people are always a blessed nation. Some people know it and appreciate it. And others also know it but hate it because they don't understand and appreciate what it is. It's God's investment in the world that comes through Israel and the Jewish people. And that will never change. Because there's certain things that can't change. That just is. A man is created to be a man and a woman is created to be a woman. And you can, tr- you can say what you want, think what you want, declare what you want, make a hundred rules and regulations and bring it to the Supreme Court and do whatever you want. You can't change it. Because these are facts that God established in creation. There's a man, there's a woman. I didn't choose to be a Jew. You didn't choose to be a Gentile. The creator of it created me as a Jew, you as a Gentile. There's no friction. Everybody plays a role. The Jewish people, their role in this world is to be the channel for divine wisdom, divine inspiration, and divine blessing into the world. And for all of humanity. And the first Jew, when they're born... They're born bringing that blessing into the world. That's the secret. The only thing we need to understand is how come Avram Avinu, Sarah and Avram, both of them, you see, as a result of the miracle that happened, the miracle doesn't stop by the Jewish people, it flows to the nations as well. But there's a difference in the way it happens. By Sarah, it happened immediately. As soon as Yitzchak is born, as soon as her baby is born, babies are born all over the world. I mean, babies that couldn't have been born, where there's been blockages, people that couldn't conceive, have now become pregnant and they're giving birth. Unbelievable. Everybody's laughing. Laughter and pleasure comes to the world. But it happens immediately, and it happens effortlessly. Sarah doesn't do anything to make it happen. It's just natural. By Avram Avinu, two things. First of all, it only happened 40 years later. That the miracle of birthing Yitzchak enables Avram now to make a contribution to the rest of the humanity of giving the world another six nations. As we said earlier in the Far East. But again, it doesn't happen immediately. Secondly, Avram needs to do something in order to bring about that. That, that he has to go get married and have children. So Avram did something for the miracle to materialize. As opposed to the first miracle that just happened. By Sarah, it happens on its own. And the answer is, the distinction between the two is because the Jewish people have influence on the world in two ways. 
One of them is in a proactive way, and the other one is in a more matter-of-fact way. One happens through our, through our work. The Jewish people are given instructions. When, the, when God gave us the Torah, it wasn't that God said, here, I'm giving you a project, you can become really great and be great and enlightened people and cleave to me and let the rest of the world, whatever. That's not what happened. God gave us the Torah, yes, 613 commandments. The rest of the world were given seven Noahid laws, much earlier than we received the Torah, in the days of Noah, or in the days of Adam, the first human being. God gave the rest of the world certain rules and regulations. Six or seven, by Noah it was increased, it became the seven Noahid laws. To the Jewish people, they gave 613. But Maimonides says that when God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, and he only gave it to the Jewish people, he instructed the Jewish people and made the Jewish people responsible for the, sev- for the 70 nations, for the Gentiles in the world, that they should keep the seven Noahide laws. Which means that we have to be proactive in that. We have to be proactive in inspiring all the Gentiles in the world to believe in God and to live a moral, ethical life based on the ethics of what the Torah's ethics are. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not be blasphemous, and so on and so forth. And you should set up courts of, so that you can have a civilized society. That's our obligation. We have an obligation for the nations. But then there's something else. And that is as a result of the mere presence of the Jewish people in the world, living a Jewish life, and hopefully following being guided by the Torah, and therefore living a godly life, it brings a certain, a certain godly brightness and light into the world that attracts people to want to further and deepen their spiritual development and connection to God. Not through active work, but through something that happens just by our mere presence and light that is drawn to the world, it creates an attraction. That's the way it is. So you see, for instance, I'm just going to quote to you the Maimonides, when he speaks about when the end of days, which we're very close to the end of days. And that's why this message that I am saying tonight needs to be said. Because if we don't say it now... We want it to be said now so that everybody can prepare joyfully and happily for the, for the time when man will not be given a choice anymore to choose right and wrong because right and God is going to be so obvious in our face, so revealed that we won't be able to choose to do the right thing. And obviously those who decided to take their appreciation for the Jewish people and and appreciate it in a manner that it creates anger, wrath, and this toxic venom enough to go into a place and to shoot up a bunch of people for no other reason than they're Jews. So the reason why I'm saying this now is that people should, could and are able to just make a little shift and change it. So Maimonides speaks about the end of days. And in, Ju- in Judaism we don't have an idea of the end of days where anybody that's not Jewish is going to go to hell. It's not a Jewish idea. By the way, we're the ones who invented Messiah, Mashiach. But the idea of the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Mashiach, 
is an idea of enlightenment for all of humanity. And Maimonides says two things. He says in the end of this 11th chapter of the war, laws, of, laws of Kings, Maimonides says that Mashiach will come. One of the jobs of Mashiach is the famous idea of tikkun olam, the correction of the world. He will howly correct the world. To serve God in unison. So Mashiach is going to do a proactive activity to get the nations of the world to serve God. But then in the last, last laws, the Ramam describes the days of Mashiach. And he says, he describes a time of enlightenment, but not in a manner where it's speaking of the Jewish people actively involved in doing it. He's speaking about a utopian time. He says, in those days, let me read the last law of all of Maimonides, which means the culmination of all of Judaism. Judaism is meant to bring the world to this utopian state. Uba'oi says, man, I don't know what exactly anybody can dislike about this. So if you don't like what I'm about to say about what the, the Jewish ultimate objective is, I mean, you just probably didn't hear this. What is it? What is the Jewish ultimate objective? In the time, in the end of days, which is upon us very soon, there won't be any hunger in the world. Anybody bothered by that, that there won't be any hungry children anymore across the entire planet? You will have enough food and enough to eat for you and your family, for your dog, and for your whatever else you want to feed, which is great. But does it really bother you that people in Africa or people in Latin America are also going to have a lot of food? Everybody, there won't be anybody hungry, okay? Everybody. No one is coming to take anything from you because they have plenty. Okay? There won't be any more war. Okay? Can we be happy with that? No war. Everybody will get along. Like Kina, there won't be any more envy. The Taharus, and there won't be this competition. There's going to be a tremendous godly bounty in the entire world. A lot of blessings. And all delicacies are going to be so available, like earth. You have it already today because we're entering into messianic times. At a click of a button, you have, what is it called? Um, 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 you know, the, the, the delivery of pizza, no, anything. Uber, Uber Eats, or what's the other one? What is it? Huh? Postmates. That, and you don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to go to the pizza shop. You don't even have to go to McDonald's or wherever it is. They, they, they'll deliver it instantly. And they'll have drones, so everything will come so quickly. Anything we want. But we're going to be in such an enlightened state that we won't care about these, these, this tremendous bounty of material blessing. Notwithstanding all this blessing, the excitement that's going to trigger and drive humanity as a whole, all of humanity, all people in the world, people will want to get to know God. They want to get to know their Creator, and that's going to give them meaning, purpose, sensation, and blissful experience. And how will that happen? And Raman says, it doesn't say that we're going to do that, the Jewish people have to do that, just going to be. And then Maimonides says, that the Jewish people will be very wise, and they will know all the secret things. Which means that you see that there is two levels. There's one in which there's a proactive role, and one that happens kind of on its own. The difference, let's say we can say, between David HaMelech and Shlomo HaMelech, or King David and King Solomon. 
when David was king, he fought wars. In other words, he drove the Jewish cause and fought for the implementation. Solomon didn't do anything. He sat in his holy temple, I'm sorry, in his palace. He built the temple. And there was such a presence of godly, godly flow. And that made Solomon so wise. That all from across the world, all the way to the queen of, of, of um, Ethiopia, came to hear him from, from afar and from wide because it was so attractive. So we see there's two ways of, of influencing. So therefore, we can see that's the difference between Abraham, between Avram, and our mother Sarah. The name Avram means a father. A father is responsible for his children. So a father's connection to his children is more proactive. Sarah means she's a nobleman. She's a minister. The world Sar means a minister. A minister is, is above their people. And just their aboveness, there's a relationship between a king and his people, but the king doesn't necessarily engage, involved, because the king is secluded and above. So these are two effects. Sarah's effect on the world is one, Avram's rather, Abraham's effect on Abraham's effect on the world is one as a father, meaning a proactive involvement of Jews, of the Jewish people, his descendants, spreading light into the world in a manner in which where people are busy doing it. The other one is that we're not busy doing it. It's just because as in Israel, after the coming of the Messiah, after Mashiach comes, there is going to be such a powerful divine presence, so much light and so much blessing, as the verse says that in the end of days, the, the mountain of, God, of the house of God is going to be established. It's a temple mount. And and all the nations of the world are going to stream. It says they're going to flock, they're going to stream. And they're all going to say, let us go to that place in where we can continue our quest and our thirst to know our Creator better so we can have enriched lives. So this, coming back full circle, brings us to the point, and that is the concluding point. From the very, very, very onset of time, anti-Semitism plagued humanity, and every type of thinker and philosopher that tried to give a logical explanation of why that are those who hate the Jewish people failed in explaining it. It's an irrational hatred. There is no explanation, but there is an explanation, but a very spiritual explanation. The explanation is that people in the world sense that the Jewish people are at the core and at the root of everything. And that's why people blame the Jewish people for every misery and every problem in the world. And the world is plagued with problems. And we need someone to blame. And people truly, deeply believe that the Jewish people are the problem of everything. They're the problem of the onslaught of immigrants that are coming out to flood America. And who knows what it's going to do. And they're the ones who run all the money and the banks and the this and the that. And they're the source of communism and they're the core source of, 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 of I don't know, I don't know, all the isms that there are. They're the problem of everything. And you know what? Let me tell you something. You're 100% right. We the Jewish people are the fault of everything that happens. Everything. 
Every, you know why? Because we're the fault of existence. The reason everything exists is because God had a dream to have a relationship with the world facilitated through the Jewish people. So as we are the fault for every headache or every pain that there is in the world, but we're also the fault for every pleasure and every delight and every wonderful day there is in this amazing planet. And that's the truth, because God had an intention in creating the world. And when one can appreciate that and recognize that that's just the way it is, and that's why we've always been, no matter when we were poor or when we were rich, when we were in whichever state, when we were religious, when we were not religious, when we, no matter what we did or how we tried, we, we still had people hating us. And the anti-Semitism didn't go away. Because it doesn't make a difference. And it's not about what we do. It's just the very existence of the Jewish people that bothers people. And which means because people know it in their gut that the Jew is at, the, is, is at fault. And we are. I, I admit. I make an admission right now for all the Jewish people. We are at fault for everything. Because that the very, very epicenter of all of existence is the, the relationship of God and his world which is connected to the Jewish people. When we recognize that and we realize that the Jewish people are not the biggest curse, but we are the biggest, biggest blessing. And we are here to bring the greatest blessing to all of mankind. Not all Jews even know this. Not just Gentiles don't know this. Jews don't know this. And we're here to, to be channels of the divine blessing into the world. Very, very soon when Mashiach will come, all Jews will be enlightened to this. And the rest of humanity will be enlightened to this. And then everybody will celebrate the Jewish people. Why not start now? Instead of the wrath and the hatred, which is when, you, God forbid, someone goes in and kills a couple of Jews. First of all, he's not a not furthering anything because just like you can't kill God, God forbid, you can't kill the Jewish people. The Jewish people and God are here to stay forever and ever and ever. So forget about that. Secondly, if you're killing Jews, you're just basically chopping your own leg off. Because we are the legs, we are the, the base for all of humanity. So it doesn't, it's, it, it's, it's for no gain. And, it's, and, it's, and as we said earlier, you can be consumed with hate or you can recognize and embrace the truth and that the Jewish people love all of humanity and we're here to bring and we're not condemning anybody to any kind of anything quite on the contrary we're here to say to the entire world let us embrace God let us embrace our creator let us live in absolute harmony in oneness in love in goodness and in kindness and very very soon all of humanity will reap the tremendous blessing of the Jewish people and of the fruits of labor in which we've all done together, Jew and Gentile, because in order for the Jews to do what they needed to do in the world, we do have to say that the Jewish people were not just persecuted and, 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 and um, throughout, throughout the ages. The Jewish people were also assisted tremendously through the peoples of the world. And without that, we couldn't have done what we've done. So ultimately, it will be the fruits and labors of all of mankind as we together embrace each other 
and embrace God and embrace Moshiach and embrace the great goodness that God has in store for all of us. May we merit to see that now. Oh, 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 oh,